Hello and good evening everybody. Welcome to the National Library of Australia for this fellowship seminar. My name is Alex Philp. I'm the Director of Overseas Collections here at the National Library and I reckon that makes me the luckiest person in the room. <laughs> Look, before we start, I'd just like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land on which we meet tonight, the Nambri and Ngunnawal people, and to pay our respects to their elders past and present. Um, it's, a, it's a delight for me again to introduce a National Fellowships presentation. Um, this one is The Odd Couple, Italy and Japan during the Second World War by Professor Michele Monserrati. And apologies for mispronouncing your name. Um, professor Monserrati is the visiting assistant professor of comparative literature and romance languages at Williams College in Williamstown, Massachusetts. He's published articles on travel literature, Cold War literature, and poetry. His current research draws on the field of transnational studies to examine the experience of Japan in works by Italian writers who visited Japan beginning in the Meiji Restoration period. His, his fellowship research will inform his book, Searching for Japan in Contemporary Italy, and it's great to see that the deal for the book came through during the presence of his fellowship just recently. Now, last Wednesday, I had the privilege to introduce Dr. Masafumi Monden's presentation. Masafumi, are you here? Oh, hiding up the back, hello. <laughs> his, his presentation was A Portrait of Shoujo, the Poetic Ambience of Japanese Girlhood. Uh, how many of, of you were here for that one as well? Fantastic. I was, I was thinking about it today and how extraordinary it is that, that our wonderful library has collections that support groundbreaking research on such diverse topics. It's, it's, a real, it's a real tribute to the foresight and the hard work of those who have built our collections over many years. So thanks to, thanks to you, and there are some in the room. Look, the Libraries Fellowship Program is founded to promote the library as a centre of scholarly activity and research, to encourage scholarly use of the library, and to promote our rich and diverse collections. A couple of months ago, we did a survey about the rich, richness and the diversity of our Asian collections in particular, and it was part of our broader research into the effectiveness of our, of our collection building. We're very pleased to receive overwhelming response from the research community about that collection, that it meets their needs, and um, also, also we, um, we found out during that that our collections are generally not available elsewhere. It's, it's my very strong opinion that providing the opportunity for all of the library's fellowships and study programs is a particularly valuable thing that we do, and I'm really proud to be part of it. Those of you who were here last week might remember that I almost kind of half-announced the expansion of our, of our study grants programs, and I'm happy to fully, properly announce that this evening. We've got final confirmation today that we can expand the Asian study grant program to our whole of our Asian collections, so it's it's great work and that it will increase the research into our collections, so we're very pleased with ourselves about that. Look, there will be opportunity for questions after the talk, but that's enough from me at the moment, so I'd like to introduce Dr. Michele Monserrati. Thanks, Alex, and thank you all very much for coming. Um, let me take a moment to, to thank the people who helped me here during my stay in Canberra. Um, uh, Robin, Bushra, Beth, Marie-Louise, Andrew, uh, Alison, Trish, Margie, Janola, Sarah, and, and others. And forgive me if I, forget, if, I forgive some, if I forget somebody. 
and of course thanks to the donors that make these fellowships possible. Today I will lay out the main idea of the chapter of my book manuscript that I have been writing during my time in Canberra and offer some specific examples. In the second part of my presentation, I will describe how the Arundel de Ray collection at the National Library of Australia has enriched this research. In this chapter, titled Mussolini in Japan, Nippon Representations in the Age of Fascism, I examine the literature of Italians traveling and living in Japan throughout the 1920s and 1930s, and as I identify in the Axis alliance between Italy and Japan from 1937 to 1943, a fundamental shift in the mode of representing Japan through travel writing. This historical event is the watershed that separates the chapter into two sections. Before the ratification of the military alliance, a nationalistic approach informed by a sense of Italian cultural supremacy defined the attitude of Italian writers who landed in the East Asian country. The writing of this period are more likely to stress anthropological differences based on a supposedly unfathomable character of the Japanese society, as well as to adopt the language of racist and sexual biases. By contrast, I argue that during the years of the military alliance between Mussolini's Italy and Hirohito's Japan, a narrative aimed at promoting commonalities and mutual goals with Japan took place in Italy. Leaving aside the first section of the chapters of the 1920s and early 1930s, today I will concentrate on the period of the Axis alliance, which I approach from two opposing perspectives. On the one hand, I focus on the propaganda-driven narrative of Japan as a country that shares with Italy the same vision of a prestigious and glorious future, the same deification of its leader, the same collective belief in patriotic faith, and the same ethical values. I especially focus on the cultural apparatus organized by the government to support its military agenda. On the other hand, because of the political ties between the two countries, I'm interested in the flow of ideas, people, cultures, and languages between Japan and Italy that took place during the alliance beyond the political propaganda. <clears throat> uh, therefore, my talk is organized around two potentially antithetical concepts. One is nationalism, and the other is transnationalism. In the first part, I will offer examples of how a fascist political ideology bolstered the unlikely alliance between two nations that had until then little history of diplomatic relations on record. By removing obvious differences, they managed to advance the political agenda of both countries. In the second part, I will concentrate on the case of Arundel de Ray, who was an Italian immigrant to Japan in the 1920s, but who remained aloof from the politics of the Italian regime and connected to a transnational network of people and countries. So by showing two contrastive examples of nationalism and transnationalism, I hope to offer a glimpse of the heterogeneous movement of people and ideas between Italy and Japan during the years of the Axis Alliance 
beyond the political propaganda. <clears throat> when Benito Mussolini proudly announced that the Italians had joined the Japanese-German anti-Comintern pact in 1937, Italians realized for the first time that Japan was no longer an exotic land, nor an hostile nation, but was likely going to become a friendly ally. Uh, such a political partnership with the East Asian country was problematic in its nature, as it presumed to align self-proclaimed fascist countries, like Germany and Italy, with a distant nation, and here you can see the distance, um, whose nationalistic, this is a postcard, uh, whose nationalistic politics were built on a radical different premise. Indeed, Japan was devoted to the semi-divine persona of the emperor, who was independent from party politics and ideologies. Unlike Germany and Italy, Japan's nationalism was less the result of a political party, sitting, uh, party organization seizing power by forcing the opposition to silence and more the consequence of a specific ideology that predicated Japanese exceptionalism and its vision of an Asian continent under the East Asian lead. Therefore, a more convincing reason was necessary to pave the way for the Axis alliance other than its commitment to fight communism. Here I want to address the dramatic shift in the representation of Japan that took place in Italy around 1938, until the end of the war, a country that was considered a potential threat to West hegemony in the world, and undermined by Orientalist views, all of a sudden was cast as a friendly partner that shared common goals, a comparable history, and similar values. The, the Italian government devised a series of strategies to promote friendship with the Asian ally including, the, including the foundation of a Società Amici del Giappone in Rome, the Society of Friends of Japan, and its equivalent in Tokyo, Italia Notomo no Kai, Society of the Friends of Italy. At the apex of these official efforts to fill the cultural and historical gap between these two countries, there was a diplomatic visit to Japan by an official delegation of the Italian regime in 1938. Uh, here is a short clip of a documentary that the, the Italian film industry, Istituto Luce, was circulating in Italy as a way to advertise the friendship with Japan. You will hear an Italian audio explaining that the Italian delegation in Japan is receiving a warm welcome at a stadium in Tokyo. While the Italian ambassador and the leader of the mission uh, salute the people, the crowd is shouting, Benito Mussolini, Banzai. <laughs> Here. Auriti, 
ha recato il saluto di Roma a Tokyo e all'antico ed eroico popolo nipponico fra altissimi banzai al duce dell'Italia imperiale. Another example of propaganda in this period uh, is a booklet um, is a booklet titled Sogno delle Hawaii Dreams of Hawaii which was printed and distributed in Italy at the end of 1944 when it was becoming obvious that Japan was losing ground in the Pacific battles. This document contains an accurate list of Anglo-American losses of both ships and airplanes during the Pacific War since the pa Battle of Pearl Harbor. Of course, in contrast to the report of this booklet, the reality was quite different. Um, for instance, uh, as evidence of Japanese military success, this document mentions the Formosa Air Battle of October 12 to October 16, 1944. Uh, October 12, Black Day, uh, when in fact at the end of which uh, the Japanese losses were as three times as the American ones. Um, the cover illustration in the background, a huge sunrise emerges from the sea and the paper with musical notes is superimposed over the image. The propaganda in this image is based on, the, on a dual interpretation of a system of signifiers. At first reading, they express an idea of exoticism. The palm tree, the island, the sun, the bather, the phrase, the dream of a wife. But as Roland Barthes would say, none of this information is innocent. World propaganda uses prov evocative exotic images to fulfill its purpose. A political signification is disseminated in the way that these signifiers are assembled. In this sense, the sun on the horizon stands as a metaphor of the upcoming victory of the empire of the rising sun in the Pacific War. The information of the name of the island, Hawaii, reminds the reader uh, of the Japanese victory at Pearl Harbor. The dream of Hawaii, therefore, stands for the dream of a colonial empire that Italy, as a member of the Pax uh, 
Axis Pact is on the verge of being part of. The successful effect of the message relies on signifiers employed by mass tourism agencies to advertise their exotic journeys. Information about military operation overlaps with the message about Hawaii as a paradise for a relaxing vacation. The use of these exotic signifiers to convey a political message has the advantage of locating the content of the message in, in an indefinite distance. The distance has separate any exotic location from the civil world of tourist consumers. At the time in which Italians were coping with the idea that war was irreversibly lost, exoticism was a useful source for delivering what in the US we have begun to refer with the now infamous, infamous term fake news <laughs> by relocating the conflict in a space and a time completely apart from the present. However, I argue that the operation of aggrandizing of the Japanese-Italian alliance was the result of fascist propaganda at its worst, and an opportunity to deepen the knowledge and to increase the cultural exchange between the two countries at its best. An example of this productive and fertile intermingling is located at the National Library of Australia, specifically in the papers of Arundel de Rey. De Ray was born in 1892 in Florence, Italy, to an Irish poetess and an Italian military officer. He grew up in Tuscany at a time when Anglophone artists and writers from Gordon Craigs to Edward Morgan Forster chose Italy as a muse to inspire their artistic creations. Arundel lived in Tuscany until his college years before moving to England in 1920 where he worked for the poet and editor Harold Morrow in the Poetry Bookshop, an experience which introduced him to poets such as Ezra Pounds and William Yeats. Between 1920 and 1927, he was lecturer in Italian at Oxford University and at London University. In 1927, Ray with his English wife, Joanne, made the most adventurous decision of his life by accepting a position of, as an English professor at Tokyo Imperial University, where he taught both English and Italian literature, at the end of which, in 1930, he moved to Taiwan, at the time Formosa, where he became professor of English and Latin language and literature at Taioku Imperial University until 1943. When the alliance between Italy and Japan fell apart after September 8, 1943, the Re refused to swear allegiance to Mussolini's social republic. And for this reason, he was arrested with his family and interned probably in Tokyo for two years, between 1943 and 1945. <clears throat> after the war, he was able to reinvent himself by offering his experience in the field of education in Japan at the service of the American occupation forces, where he was employed by the chief of the civil information and education sector about all matters pertaining to the educational reorganization of Japan between 1945 and 1951. When the American occupation forces left Japan in 1951, the Ray moved to Nagoya to become chair of the English department at Nanzan Catholic University. In 1954, due to medical reasons, he moved from Japan to Sydney, and from there, in 1958, to Wellington, New Zealand. 
to Wellington, New Zealand, where he was a lecturer in English and Italian Victoria, at Victoria University until 1967. In Sydney, the Ray was founding member of the Oriental Society of Australia, while in Wellington, he was founding member of the Japan Society of New Zealand. In parallel with Japanese culture, the Ray was fully involved in promoting Italian culture as well. In fact, he organized the exhibition for the Michelangelo Centenary at Center Gallery in Wellington in 1964, and a year later, he was involved in organizing an exhibit to celebrate the birth of Dante at the National Art Gallery, still in Wellington. As a result of this commitment to multiple countries, the Ray received a gold medal for his services to Italy and a special order from the Emperor of Japan. In the last few years of his life, the Ray returned to Australia to finally settle in Melbourne where his family, with his family until his death in 1974. <clears throat> the Ray's nomadic life across nations and continents never contemplated a permanent return to his birthplace. Yet Italy, among the countries in which he lived, was the one that he remained most committed to, not only by promoting its cultural heritage, but also by collaborating with its institutions. During the First World War, he publicly defended the right of Italy to enter the war, and he became private secretary to the military attaché in the Italian embassy in London, where he worked from 1916 to 1919. In his 27 years in Japan, the Ray did not endorse the fascist government, but he nonetheless helped Italian institutions in a form of cultural expertise and logistic support. For instance, in Taiwan, he was appointed as an honorary consular agent, a position that he held until 1943, while in Tokyo, he acted as a personal secretary of the Italian ambassador, Pompeo Aloisi, with the goal of organizing the exhibition of Japanese art in Rome in, of 1930. In other words, his migrant trajectory was characterized by a progressive forward move, movement from country to country, but without neglecting his origins. <coughs> in spite of his strong ties to Italy, Arundel decided to remain in Japan at the end of the war, to help the country rise to its feet after so much loss and destruction. He could have, have good reason to leave the people that kept him prisoner of war for two years. Unfortunately, in this regard, the Arundel de Ray collections at the NLA does not reveal anything about the experience of Arundel and his family as a POW. However, we know from the stories told by the Italian ethnologist Fosco Maraini, also interned in Japan, that prisoners were starved and bullied to the point of desperation. And here at the Harold Williams collection, I found the article that described Fosco Maraini's experience as a POW of chopping off one of his fingers and throwing it to its guards as an extreme attempt to call attention and obtain better treatment for himself and his family. Can you believe that? Yeah. In an article published upon his departure from Japan, Arundel looks back over the war years and right after the liberation, using words that help explain the reason of his decision to stay in Japan. <coughs> and he says, 
Never did I experience so intensively the strength of that community feeling that knit together spontaneously those of us who have watched Tokyo in flames and remembered the wailing of sirens and those evil-looking fish flying overhead and the deadly swish of the firebombs. Nor am I likely ever to forget the scenes I witnessed after the nightmare was over when people slowly returned to consciousness wandering in search of familiar landmarks and happy memories through this strange city, a wilderness of rubble and solitary chimney stacks dotted here and there with small oases, miraculously forgotten of trees and greenery sprawling endlessly over hill and valley. But most impressive of all was a sudden meeting with old friends and students mysteriously stepping like ghosts out of the past the renewal of old friendship and the forging of new and stronger links, and with it a clear insight into the significance of the Japanese past, not as something dead to be dug up and embalmed by scholars, but as perennial fountain of life and creative force. He was a good writer. <clears throat> the re envisioned collaboration with the American occupation troops in Japan as an opportunity to be an effective actor for rebuilding the relationship between Japan and the West. At least this is what the Ray writes on the pages of the Japanese journal The Rising Generation when he was already relocated with his family in Sydney. However, the document in, possess in possession of the National Library reveal how controversial this decision was and how increasingly uncomfortable his stay in Japan became after the war. The most significant moment of this experience was the memorandum that he wrote for the education section of the American occupation forces about the risk of transferring Western values to the Japanese education plan. This document contradicts the positive attitude and the possibility of integration to which the Ray alludes in his article written as a farewell to Japan. In writing to the American chief of education, the Ray lays out the problem of collaboration in essentialist terms. In his own words, there exists an essential dividing line between ourselves, Westerners, and the Japanese, which constitutes perhaps the greatest obstacle to a deep spiritual communion. There is no doubt that the race of a riding concern is to work through the differences in order to promote cooperation. Uh, yet the logic, the logic of his discourse betrays a classic orientalist approach predicated upon patronizing assumptions. In fact, he observes, to those who have come into close contact with the Japanese, it will have become apparent that their actions and way of thinking are mainly determined by emotion rather than thought. The key words here are to come into close contact. The Ray explains that the phenomenon that must be factored in when attempting to understand the Japanese is the fatal influence that the country has on its own people. In fact, he says, the more one becomes conditioned to Japan, the more one becomes conscious of the predominance of the sensorial and emotional rather than intellectual elements in individual and social life control and directed in accordance with the traditional patterns expressive of its naturalistic culture. <clears throat> While the Ray acknowledges that Japanese are not intrinsically irrational, 
because they live according to values and mores rooted in their tradition, he fails to see the inherent racism of his discourse based on a subjective notion of reason and morality beyond which only the territory of irrationality can unfold. His rational approach fails at accounting for the rationality of the other and thus limits the possibility of common understanding. If the dividing line between us and them is conceived as a sense of belonging to a nation with its own race, language, and history, the consequence is that the coexistence of the foreigner with the other in a foreign land becomes increasingly problematic and harmful in the long term. Between the lines of the memorandum, it is possible to read the sense of discomfort due to a lack of empathy and intersubjective understanding that the re must have experienced in Japan. He recalls the phenomenon he observed of Japanese living abroad and speaking English fluently as becoming completely different individuals once they come back to their country. In his own words, he indicates, here I have the quote underlined, um, he indicates that however westernized and un-Japanese they might have seemed until that moment, they become in some subtle way different persons. Meet them again at parties or on university campus a short time afterwards, and in spite of their Savoy role, tailor, and command of colloquial English, you felt that the kind of barrier has grown up between you and them. Uh, the Ray must reckon with the limits of his transnational identity. That was the trademark of his success as international scholar. It is certainly true that the failure is partially due to the fact that he had never learned Japanese in his 27 years of time spent in the host country. In this sense, the memorandum is perhaps the rationalization at the cultural and historical level of a barrier that is subjective and personal. In any case, the American Lieutenant Colonel Donald Nugent, who had a PhD in Far Eastern History from Stanford University, received the memorandum, received the memorandum and while he appreciated and shared the race observations, he also suggested keeping it secret as the content could have offended the locals. As a Japanese scholar himself, Nugent understood that the memorandum, while born out of an attempt at finding new avenues for an, for an intercultural dialogue, could be interpreted as an indictment against the Japanese for being isolationist and hostile toward cultural hybridization. <clears throat> However, Japan is not at that hand of the race transnational journey. His failure to negotiate his own identity with the Japanese other did not result in the counter movement of tracing back his steps toward the sameness of his own country of, of origins, whether that might be Italy or England. Um, his, deci his decision to live in Anglophone nations between Australia and New Zealand is a choice obviously determined to favor his cultural integration. Nevertheless, it also derived from the desire to follow the transnational geography of migration that is a space populated by individuals like him whose stories reveal far-reaching ties and allegiances to other countries around the world. 
While apparently finding a refuge in the English spoken world, the ray was in search of an in-between space where cultural traditions met and new forms of mutual understanding were required. In other, in other words, his move indicates not an effacement of his inclination toward intercultural exchange, but rather a, a recalibration of it toward the restatement of the distance between the self and the other that is a necessary space for cultural dialogue to happen. In a letter to his co colleague in Japan, Arthur Loomis, on July 3, 1967, uh, Dere, who was about to leave Wellington to relocate in Melbourne, looks back at his time in New Zealand and comments on how such a country has represented the middle ground space that allowed him to negotiate his multiple identity, identities. I think the peacefulness of New Zealand, a country that physically and climatically often recalls Japan, has served to establish a kind of critical equilibrium between West and East and between Romans and German Germanic cultural reactions and emotions. <clears throat> The new country becomes an imaginary space where East and West are reconciled in the mind of the author, as the raised own Italian and English cultural heritages being equally represented. Transnationalism normally implies a movement between home and abroad, but in the case of Arundel de Rey, the place of origin, Italy and England, as well as the elsewhere place, Japan, New Zealand, Australia, are equally blurred, and the link between local and global is compromised by interferences and experience of, of displacement. By locating its transnational story during the times of Japan's rising nationalism and its alliance with fascist Italy, the ray complicates the picture that portrays Italian residing, re residing in the Far East as representatives of the regime and its political ideology. His post-war trajectory of migration to New Zealand and Australia inscribed his biography within a community of cosmopolitan citizens whose sense of belonging and heterogeneous ties are transient, uh, transient and far-reaching. Indeed, the National Library of Australia is fortunate to own this extraordinary collection. And thank you very much for listening. <laughs> Thanks for that wonderful presentation, um, Michele. I particularly like the parallel between looking at the expatriate archi archives of Del Rey in Japan with our own Harold Williams collection, who was an Australian expatriate in Japan at around the same time. And his, he left us his collection, but also a huge bequest, which um, does pay for some of the, uh, <laughs> the fellowships, including yours. So there was a, there was a nice, um, nice parallel. Look, we've got some time for questions, so I'd like to open it up to anyone at all who'd like to to ask Michaeli any parts of his research. <coughs> oh, Robin, I thought you were going to put your hand up. <laughs>
Thank you for the question. Um, uh, for sure, I, I bump into this collection uh, by studying Fosco Maraini, uh, who is an ethnologist, uh, a ja Japanologist, uh, who lived in Japan for more than 30 years. And his collection, uh, Fosco Marini's collection, is in Florence. And in Florence, um, which is now the, the, the site of the largest Asian collection in Italy, uh, thanks to his uh, col uh, Marini collection, uh, in Florence, there are letters of Randall de Rey uh, sent to Fosco Maraini uh, in 1942 during the war. And so I become interested to these types of Italians, you know, these type of Italians who were not um, um, sent by Mussolini to spread the propaganda. You know, I wanted to make the point that you know, the, the Japanese-Italian relationship in that period were not just based on, you know, pure propaganda, as I show in the first part of my talk, but uh, there was also a genuine cultural exchange. You know, these Italians were trying to introduce Japanese culture in Italy, um, and they're trying to, to make the, the ties between the two countries stronger, um, you know, beyond the, the fascist period. As a matter of fact, you know, Marini remain in Japan in the 1960s and he continued you know, to prove this relationship. But yeah, this is sort of be my story. And, and has the collection fulfilled what you expected to find? Well, uh, <laughs> when I came here with an idea and I, I was really interested to the war years and I was hoping to find this collection like documents related to the to the time when he was prisoner, when the Ray was prisoner, the two years, and but I couldn't find anything. You know, the, there is a sort of instinct of self-effacement in, in this uh, collection. You know, they purposely not left any documents about that period. It is my, you know, uh, my idea, my opinion after three months of research. And this collection is very rich for the time of 1960s, 1970s, but he prefers not to talk about the 1940s and during the war. Um, so that's why I think the document that, that I found about the memorandum it, is interesting because it shows some inconsistency with the narrative that this collection I want to show about Randall the real life that was so happy with the Japanese. <laughs> so, so there is some inconsistency that I found thanks to this. Uh, the memorandum is an exceptional document. I think that kind of proves the point that it goes in a different direction. Um, so, I, you know, I wasn't planning to, to come to find this, you know, particular document, but um, I was really pleased for this surprise. <laughs> and I keep continuing to research about, you know, Randall the Ray uh, documents around the world because, you know, in, in the U.S., because of this collaboration with the Americans, there are, you know, in Virginia, there are other archives that have his own like letters so it's a very transnational you know <laughs> collection yes um, didn't Randall um, go back to Italy uh, at all at all and is there a reason why he didn't go back to Italy um, 
I don't think he ever came back to Italy after the war. Um, uh, however, the collection shows many uh, contacts that he had with Italy. So he definitely invited Italians, you know, both in New Zealand and Australians. There are many letters with Italian relatives in Italy. But to my knowledge, I don't think he ever came back to, to Italy. Yes. the certificate of naturalization of um, Randall de Rey uh, in New Zealand when he became New Zealand citizen and in these documents I, they say that he was Roman Catholics so um, we never mention of it but he was Roman Catholics and um, it's interesting the relation with during fascism um, I think in the during World War One, he was really endorsing the Italian government uh, in the 1920s I think like people like Fosco Marini, they went to Japan actually to escape from fascism. They didn't want anything to do with that. Um, so one of the reasons why Marini and the Ray were in Japan was actually to not to have anything to do with the, with the fascist government uh, in Italy. Um, although he, as I mentioned, he collaborated with, Italian, with fascist institutions in Japan. So he didn't want to you know, go against of it, but he clearly did not endorse the, the fascist um, uh, the, the fascist regime while in Japan, unlike many other Italians who did. Um, as a matter of fact, he was arrested as a, um, as a Fosco Marini um, because, you know, in 1943, you were required to answer the question, are you pro or against, uh, you know, Mussolini fascist um, uh, government? And he, he said to be against, so that's why he was um, arrested. So I'm not sure if I'm answering your questions.
you a good question. Um, <clears throat> sure. The, um, in the last few years, there is a scholarship that is trying to reevaluate the importance of uh, Italy and Japan for the rising of nationalism. Um, for sure, from a military point of view, the alliance with Germany was a, a better deal for, <laughs> for Japan. But from an ideological perspective, uh, the roots of fascism and the, the model of nationalism that Japan was trying to implement in the 1930s was actually look after the, the Italian model, the Mussolini's model. They were interested in the type of leader and the, and the type of uh, propaganda and image of himself that he was uh, projecting. Um, so I think Japan became in, in, in interesting in Italy, uh, especially when Italy invaded Ethiopia in 1935. Um, because, um, you know, as uh, Japan invaded the Manchukuo state, you know, a few years earlier, you know, uh, there were two countries that were going against the League of the Nations. And, and so, um, at this point, they were very similar, you know, they have a very similar historical position to defend. You know, two nations that went against the, the, Brit the Britain and, and, and the United States <coughs> in the League of the Nations. So what Italy did after Ethiopia was much interested to Japan as a, as a model, you know, to what they were going to do with the Manchukuo state and with the, and with the 1937 war to China. But there is a, a scholar here in Australia, it's Reto Hoffman, uh, from the University of Melbourne who wrote a book about this and so he actually shows this relationship in a much more detailed way. Look, that's great. Thanks Thanks very much. Look, apparently there's a perception that staff at the National Library get to sit around and read the books and dip into the manuscript boxes all the time. I can assure you that's not true, which is why it's an absolute extra delight to hear from people such as yourself, McKayley, and last week, um, Masafumi as well, to tell us about the richness and the wonderful things in the collection items we don't get time to look at. So thanks for that extra extra bit of, bit of interest. Look, um, before I let you go, I just wanted to say thank you for your presentation. Um, thank you for fitting in with the staff of the National Library over the last three months, the same way Masafumi did as well, and also introducing us to your wife, Nicole, and I think your daughter as well has come in a few times and been part of the team. So it's, it's been a really good contribution. Um, thank you all for attending. If you haven't seen the, Meiji, the Melodrama in Meiji exhibition, do so. You've got another month or so. It's, it's fantastic. And there's also a lovely collection of... Chinese propaganda posters at the end of the Treasures Gallery, which for those of you who were here last week, I, I am encouraged you to see as well. But look, thanks again and please join me once again in, in thanking Professor Michele Monserrati. <laughs>